0: We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of uh, John, and as we continue in our study uh, through this book, we come this morning to John chapter 4, verse 35, and my goal uh, this morning is to cover uh, verses 35 through 38, and the title of the message is, Seeing the Harvest, Reaping the Harvest. Seeing the Harvest, Reaping the Harvest. Years ago, um, when our church was meeting at the YWCA uh, in Riverside, I, uh, at the end of a Sunday morning sermon, I asked for a raise of hands from anyone in the audience who realized that they needed to be saved and who wanted to pray to receive Christ. And as I looked out over the audience that morning, nobody raised their hand. The next day, I was going through the visitors' cards and calling people, and I dialed the number of a man who had visited our church for the first time the previous day. And when he answered the phone, I said, hi, this is Pastor Milton from Cornerstone, and I'm just calling to uh, say hi and to thank you for visiting our service uh, yesterday. And he immediately let out a sigh of relief when I specified my purpose for calling. And he said, oh, okay, I thought you might be calling to find out why I didn't raise my hand at the end of the service yesterday. And I said, no, that's not why I'm calling at all. I'm just calling to introduce myself and to thank you for visiting. But since you mention it, should you have raised your hand... Uh, yesterday. And he said, yes, I should have. And I said, so you understood the message and you understand uh, your need for Christ and salvation through him. And he said, yes, I do. And so not knowing what else to say, I said, so would you like to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation? And he said, yes, I would. And I said, like right now, And he said, absolutely. And to my amazement, just less than five minutes into our conversation, this man was praying over the phone, crying out to the Lord beautifully for salvation through Christ. And I share this story with you uh, this morning because in this situation, I on a Monday morning, found myself confronted with an unexpected harvest. And afterwards, I was left almost breathless with the magnitude of the transaction that had taken place so swiftly in the life of this man. And I also felt blessed to be there with this man in this exact moment when his soul was ready to be harvested for Christ. Many of you have had such a privilege as well. And in John chapter 4, the disciples of Jesus are literally going to be finding themselves in a very similar situation where a harvest is moving towards them. A harvest is coming their way when they had no reason to expect one. As far as they are concerned, they're simply passing through Samaria. This is simply a rest stop on their way to Galilee. They've stopped at this particular well because they were tired and hungry and needing something to eat. Jesus seemed wearied from his travels, so they left him at the well and they went into the town to buy some food and they have returned from their grocery run and they are now trying to get Jesus to eat. We saw this last Sunday, but eventually a group of people are coming out of the city of Sychar and walking towards them as they are gathered near this well, but the disciples don't even notice this Crowd of people approaching them, and they don't realize that a harvest of souls is right now moving in their direction. You will recall that Jesus has been talking to a woman of Samaria, uh, and in that conversation, he went to her sin issues and even revealed himself to her as the long awaited Messiah. And after this revelation of himself to her, she immediately leaves her water pot and goes into the city saying to everyone in verse 29, come see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And wonderfully, amazingly, the people hear her invitation and are responding in verse 30 the text says they went out of the city and were coming to him so there's a crowd of people now visible who are coming out from the city to see Jesus and Jesus sees them he knows that a great move of God is in the works and that they are coming to him because of the woman's testimony But the disciples don't know what's going on. They're preoccupied with trying to get Jesus to eat. They are preoccupied with a good thing, and they're missing out on the best thing that God is doing at this very moment. And Jesus renders them an invaluable service in directing their attention toward this great work of God that is right now. In process. In verse 35, he literally delivers what could be interpreted as a threefold command for his disciples to look and to see what's going on. Listen to what he says to them in verse 35. Do you not say, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look. On the fields that they are white for harvest. In this one verse, we have Jesus saying, behold, which is actually a command to see. Following that, he says, lift up your eyes. And then he says, look on the fields. Obviously, there is more than meets the eye in this group of people walking out of the city toward jesus and jesus wants to get the disciples clued in quickly because there's going to be a lot of work for them to do and as we look at this passage this morning we're going to observe five truths five truths that jesus wants his disciples to see about reaping the souls of those who are coming to him five truths that jesus wants his disciples to see in this moment about reaping the souls of those who are right now in this moment coming to Jesus. Number one, you can fill in the blanks in your notes if you have them. Truth number one, this, as Jesus points to this group of people, this is a soul harvest and it is ripe for reaping. Observe once again what Jesus says in verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. When Jesus says there are yet four months and then comes the harvest, he's probably quoting a proverb that was popular in this day. When the crops were planted... And the shoots of the young crop were beginning to sprout from the ground. The farmers knew that four or five months from now, the crops would be ready and ripe for harvesting. And so they knew to wait and be patient. But they also knew that once the crops became ripe, it was important for them to move quickly or to risk losing their harvest. And we don't know actually what time of year it is right now here in John 4, but it wouldn't be surprising if there were actually fields of crops within view of Jesus and his disciples at this moment. But we also know that Jesus is not pointing to any actual grain or wheat field right now where the crop turns comparatively white when it's ready for harvest. We know that he's pointing to the Samaritans who are coming out of the city toward Jesus, and they were likely dressed in their typically white garb, which would have been common in this region and climate. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, look at these people who are coming out towards us in this very moment. This is a harvest And it is more ripe for reaping than you realize. And as the disciples would have turned in the direction that Jesus is pointing them, they see the people. And they're probably seeing some of the very people that they encountered when they were in the city buying their food. But when they saw these people then, they didn't see them then the way that Jesus is helping them to see them now. When buying their food at the market in the city of Sychar, perhaps these disciples just saw some of these Samaritans as vendors, or they just saw some of these samaritans as irritating obstacles to navigate around as they traveled through the city market given their racial prejudices some of these disciples may have even felt uncomfortable in the city and tried to keep as much distance from the people as possible given that they are samaritans These disciples may have also, when they were in the city on their grocery run, shaken their heads at the lostness of the place, thinking, boy, these people are so far from God, they are well nigh hopeless. And yet, this Samaritan woman has a brief exchange with Jesus, and she's come away from her encounter with Jesus, and she has gone to these very people of her city, and she has said, "'Come see a man who told me everything that I ever did.'" This is not the Messiah, is it? And immediately, these people stop what they are doing, and they're making their way out of the city toward Jesus. This is a stunning development that would have been the last thing that these disciples would have expected One commentator, Leon Morris, says it this way, If those disciples had appointed a commission of inquiry as to the possibilities of Christian enterprise in Samaria, I know exactly the resolution they would have passed. The resolution would have been, quote, Samaria unquestionably needs our master's message, but it is not ready for it. There must first be plowing, then sowing, and then waiting. It is needy, but it is not ready, Unquote. And yet here is Jesus pointing to this crowd of Samaritans walking toward them, and he says to his disciples, behold, lift up your eyes and look and see that these people are ripe for harvesting. Hearing Jesus speaking this way should raise a question in our minds at this point, and the question is, what is it about these people that would cause Jesus to say that they are ripe for harvest? Would Jesus say this about just anyone? And if not, what is it about these people that would cause Jesus to describe them in this way? Well, there's three things I think we can identify. Number one, they have heard the truth that Jesus is the Messiah because the woman had told them so. Secondly, they know that Jesus is going to be dealing forthrightly with their sin. And they would have known this because the woman alerted them to this reality when she described Jesus As one who had told her everything that she had ever done. And then, thirdly, knowing those two things, these people are willing to drop whatever they are doing and make their way to Jesus. Trust me, guys, if if you're ever talking to someone and you observe that they know that Jesus is the Messiah and they know that Jesus will deal forthrightly with their sin issues and they want to drop everything and come to Jesus, you can safely assume that such a person is ripe for harvesting. It is to these kinds of people that Jesus is pointing When he says to his disciples in verse 35, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Which means that we should not necessarily take Jesus' words here to mean that every person that you ever meet anywhere is ripe for harvesting jesus is pointing to a specific group of people that are right now coming to him with the mindset that we've just looked at and it is to these people that he points and says behold a harvest that is ripe for reaping and he says this to his disciples so that they can join him in engaging in the business of harvesting these souls for himself which leads us to the second truth that Jesus wants his disciples to see about reaping the souls of those who are coming to him in this moment. Number two, let's word it this way. Truth number two, the reaper profits personally from the harvest. The reaper profits personally from the harvest. Jesus continues in verse 36 saying, "Already." He who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. First of all, just real quick, what does it mean to reap a soul? What it means to successfully lead a person whose heart God has prepared into believing in Jesus Christ and calling upon the name of the Lord for salvation such that they become a worshiper of God in spirit and in truth. And here in verse 36, Jesus says that the person who gets involved in reaping souls, look at the text, already is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. Notice the two outcomes here. He is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal. Actually, these are not two separate outcomes, but one where the second defines the first. What are the wages that reapers of souls are already receiving? Their wages are fruit for eternal life that Jesus speaks about here. So what is fruit for eternal life? It's the souls that the reaper is winning to Christ and to whom God is giving the gift of eternal life. These converts that are being reaped by the reaper are themselves the reaper's reward which means that no one who is engaged in the task of reaping souls for Christ will ever look at God down the road and say to God, where are the wages that you promised me? I've led people to Christ, and I'm still waiting for my wages. Such a person would never speak this way to God because everyone who wins souls to Christ already feels amply rewarded by the very people whom they have won to Christ. Amen? Think about why this is so. When you win a soul to Christ, God does not merely gain a son or a daughter, but you also gain a brother or a sister. That new convert that you have just won to Christ is a part of your gospel inheritance. And you will find that there are blessings and there are giftings that God has placed inside of them that will make you all the richer as a Christian. So when we as a church community are evangelizing others and reaping souls for Christ, We're not simply winning souls to Christ, but we are winning friends for time and for eternity. Our lives and our eternities become richer with each person that we harvest for Christ. With this understanding in mind, we realize that one way of wording the Great Commission could be this. Go into all the world and make friends for eternity. Go into all the world and find your inheritance in Christ. Go find the people that you will live with forever. They are your wages." And when you think that way, you begin to realize that seeking souls and evangelizing others is like a treasure hunt, and you get to win souls to Christ and become richer for now having a new brother or sister in Christ with all the blessings that come with that. Here in John chapter 4, verse 36, Jesus telling, is telling you that if you get involved in harvesting souls god will see to it that you are amply compensated and that compensation will come in the form of the people that you harvest and so enjoy that enjoy them and enjoy the story of what god is doing in their lives and enjoy the amazing privilege that is yours to have a role to play in their salvation story learn to think like the apostle paul who said to the Thessalonian Christians, whom he had won to Christ, in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, he says to them, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming? Paul literally viewed these converts as his reward, even as his heavenly reward. And we can view those we harvest for Christ in the same way. And that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples here. When you engage in harvesting souls, you receive more than adequate, eternal compensation in the form of the very people that you are reaping for Christ. There's a third truth that Jesus wants his disciples to see about reaping the souls of those who are coming to him at the moment. Number three, the one reaping the harvest rejoices together with the one sowing. The one reaping the harvest rejoices together with the one sowing. Perhaps some of the disciples heard Jesus and right away they moved toward this group of Samaritans and they're already engaging and doing what Jesus is beckoning them to do, while maybe other disciples are kind of holding back a little bit. But look again at verse 36 with special focus on the last half of the verse. Jesus says, Already, he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Essentially, Jesus is encouraging his disciples to get involved in the reaping of souls, and he tells them that one of the results of reaping souls is that the person who reaps gets to enjoy a spiritual bond of joy with the person who has sown into that convert's life as they now rejoice together over the success of their tag team effort. But thinking about this particular situation here in John 4, a question might be, who is the one who sows that Jesus is speaking about in verse 36? In the lives of the Samaritan people right now coming out to see Jesus, who is the person who sowed into them? Some commentators suggest that the sower could be viewed as Moses, whose five books of Scripture the Samaritans believed in. And we all know that the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. Others suggest that the sower might likely be John the Baptist, whose influence had almost certainly reached as far as this city in Samaria. Others suggest it could be nameless persons who have been sowing uh, in this area to prepare the hearts of the people for this great move of God. Whatever you think of these suggestions, everyone agrees that the Samaritan woman is a key sower in this drama, right? She's the one who went out to the people of the city and she spoke to them the truth about Jesus and she's inviting them to come and to see him. So she is clearly a key sower in this instance. But I wonder if... Our thinking should go even beyond these horizontal possibilities when we think about the one who sows, here in verse 36 that Jesus is referring to, because there's an overwhelming sense in which I think we can say that the triune God is the sower, inasmuch as as God is the ultimate one who renders a person ready for harvesting, right? Right? We learn in John 3 that people must be born again of the Spirit, teaching us that it is the Spirit of God who brings people to spiritual life. Later in this gospel, Jesus will say, No one can come to me unless the Father draw him. So we see the Father's involvement as well. Beyond these references, we have the amazing statement of Jesus later in, in John chapter 12, where Jesus speaks of himself as the ultimate seed that is sown. Write down this reference, John 12, verse 24. John 12, 24, Jesus says, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth,' And dies, it remains by itself alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he's speaking about the cross and his coming death on the cross. In this statement, Jesus is announcing that he is the seed that must fall to the ground and die, and thereafter, on the other side of that dying bear much fruit. So in one sense, the ultimate sower is God the Father, and the ultimate seed of salvation is Jesus Christ, and the Father reaches His hand down to earth, holding His Son, and the Father opens His hand and allows His Son to fall to the ground and die, which means that it was at the cross where the ultimate sowing of the ultimate seed took place. Every soul that you and I will ever reap unto salvation comes from that great, awesome moment of sowing. Amen? Beyond that, in the situation we see here in John 4, Jesus has been doing sowing in this Samaritan woman's life. He did this sowing while he was engaging with her while the disciples were away shopping for food. So you put all these thoughts together and you ask, who is the sower that Jesus is speaking about here in verse 36? Well, on some level, it's all the different ideas that I have just presented in the last few moments. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that they will now be able to rejoice together with all those who did the sowing as they harvest these souls for Christ. A big takeaway here for us is this, if you give your life to reaping souls for Christ, Jesus is telling you that there is joy for you in that. There is rejoicing for you in that. He's telling you that your joy will be a communal joy between you and those who sowed seed into the lives of the persons that you are harvesting for Christ. When you reap a soul for Christ, you will rejoice together with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And with all your fellow Christians, past and present who participated in sowing seeds into the life of the person that you are right now harvesting for Christ. Why is this so? Well, this leads us to the fourth truth that Jesus uh, wants us to look at. Well, actually, before we get to that, uh, let me say just a couple more things before we get to point four. The Lord wants us to be involved in harvesting souls. This is a calling that he has given to all of us. It's easy for us as believers to get caught up and preoccupied with so many other things. But how much of a place in your heart... Does the harvesting, sowing into people's lives for Christ and reaping souls figure into your consciousness each day? All of us in this room need to be asking ourselves this question because this is what we are called to do. This is why Christ has left us here with this amazing calling. Let's word point number four or truth number four in in this way. A division of labor exists in the harvesting of souls. That's the whole reason Jesus could speak the way that he just did because there's a division of labor that exists in the harvesting of souls. Observe what he says in verse 37. He says, for in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. One sows and another reaps. When Jesus tells his disciples this, he's alerting them and us to the fact that evangelism is always a team effort. In the first place in evangelism, there's the role that God plays and there's the role that we play. God is the ultimate sower, the ultimate nurturer who brings a person to a ripened state. Horizontally speaking, there is also a division of labor amongst all of us in the congregation. There are people who sow, and all of us should be involved in sowing lavishly into people's lives. And we sow by showing the love of Christ to people in tangible ways and in Jesus' name and by speaking timely biblical truth to them and share with them the gospel. And we can do such things knowing that the day may come when the person that we are sowing into may reach a ripened state and be ready to believe in Christ. And in all likelihood, when that moment comes, someone will be there to harvest them. It may be you. It may be somebody else. And if it is someone else, you and that future reaper are connected at the heart. And you're able to rejoice together. And none of us should ever feel any sense of rivalry with each other about such matters. When you plant gospel seeds into a person's life, you realize when doing so that you're not merely loving that potential convert, but you are also loving the person who will get to reap that soul in a future day and get to benefit from the fruit of salvation in that person's life. So if I can give an encouragement to you parents so lavishly, into your children, teach them God's word, have them memorize scripture, memorize scripture together with them, bring them to church and to care group with you so that they can be taught God's word and see the people of God worshiping and singing songs of praise to him during their highs and their lows, as well as confessing their sins to Jesus, who is a great savior. Doing such things as a parent does not automatically make your child a Christian. But if God gets a hold of their heart, he can use all the seeds that you and others have planted in them in powerful ways. Those scriptures that your children memorized and the songs that they learn can become like theological time bombs exploding At a later point in their heart, in a time of God's choosing, in the meantime, pour into your children and your grandchildren and sow lavishly into them. Looking at what Jesus is saying here from another direction, if you, as a believer, ever get the privilege of harvesting a soul for Christ you should always remember that there were many other people who had a vital hand in that. And you need to make sure that you appreciate those other people and not think that you were the one who caused it all to happen, right? Why does this point even need to be made? Well, because the me monster can attack anyone including us, even when we're involved in ministry and in harvesting souls. But don't let this happen to you. Celebrate the ministry of others and the very lives of the people that you're experiencing success with as you minister to them. Be quick to affirm the role that others have played in the lives of those that you are winning to Christ. Don't just celebrate your work and Make yourself the center of the ministry stories that you tell. Celebrate the work of others whose labor has led up to the success that you are now experiencing. Realize that when you lead a soul to Christ, you stand at the very end of an amazingly lengthy process wrought by God that brings the convert to this incredible moment of conversion. The story of their salvation actually began when God chose that person in Christ before the foundations of the earth. It involved the cries of women down through the centuries as they gave birth to children who would be in the lineage of the Messiah. It involved the Messiah being born and living a perfect life, and dying on the cross to provide atonement for sins. It involved Christ being raised from the dead and then being ascended to God's own right hand. It involved the apostles receiving the Spirit of God and giving their lives to testifying for Jesus Christ and making Him known. It involved the faithfulness of the inspired writers of Scripture, To tell the story of Christ and to explain its ramifications, it involved the faithfulness of so many through the centuries who faithfully preserved and copied those scriptures so that those scriptures would be with us today. And you can direct people's attention to what the Word of God says. It involved the faithfulness of so many saints who declared the gospel from one to another and then another and then another for centuries until that gospel finally got declared to you so that you can now share that very gospel with the person that you now have the privilege of reaping. The salvation of that person that you are reaping involves God's gracious work in their life also. It was God who gave them physical life and preserved them alive up to the day that you shared the gospel with them, shaping them through many experiences and sowing many seeds into their heart through the ministry of so many people. And now even regenerating them to a readiness to believe the gospel that you have just declared to them. And now here you are. You have just shared the gospel with this person and they have responded to you And they've said, I want to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. And you now get the opportunity to harvest this soul. And you suddenly realize that you are simply a very late arrival in the story of this convert's salvation. And you realize that God is giving you the amazing privilege of just being there in that moment on the harvest end of a very lengthy, wonderful series of events that goes back thousands of years, even before time itself. Knowing all of this is humbling. It is also freeing. And it kind of makes you want to get involved in the task of harvesting souls, right? What a great enterprise to be involved in. And let's allow this to lead us to the fifth and the final truth that Jesus wants his disciples and us to see about reaping the souls of those who are coming to him at the moment. Number five, Jesus sends reapers to enter the labor of others. Jesus sends reapers to enter the labor of others. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 38. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus in all likelihood said this to his disciples while they're engaged and doing his bidding. And this is an amazing way for Christ to depict the calling to reap the souls of others, teaching us that evangelism often does entail reaping the labor of others. And that's not only okay, that is actually God's plan. And Jesus here is saying, I sent you to reap. This is your assignment from me to enter into the labor of others and do your part in reaping souls. When Christ speaks of others in this verse who have labored, he's partly talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Evangelism is us entering into the labor of the triune God who has done the real labor of salvation. And we simply get the pleasure of reaping those for whom he has labored. In fact, here's one way of phrasing the Great Commission. Imagine Christ saying to us, I want souls to be saved and much needs to be done to make that happen. And we're like, okay, we're ready to do whatever you need us to do. And Jesus says, well, here's how it'll happen. I will come to earth and I will live the life that they failed to live. And I will die the death that they deserve to die And I'll do the resurrecting from the dead and the ascending to the right hand of the Father. And then I will send my spirit to empower you to declare the truth of the gospel to the lost. And as they hear your gospel presentation, the problem is that they're dead. They're spiritually dead and not able to respond. So my spirit will regenerate them from the dead And enable them to believe. And my Father will draw them to Himself. And we're left, well, is there anything I can do? And Jesus says, As for you, you can harvest. You can harvest all of that. The product of the labor of the triune God. And when you harvest some soul, As a product of the labor of the triune God, please don't think for a minute that it was some genius thing you said (laughs) that made it all happen. And for those of you who feel insecure about evangelizing people because you're afraid to mess things up and ruin some soul forever, Jesus would say there is so much omnipotent grace over millennia that goes into the conversion of every sinner. So don't think that you not having some genius answer to every apologetic question can mess that up. In this case here in John 4, Jesus was the one who did the labor of talking to the Samaritan Woman, And then she was the one who did the labor of going to the people of her town to tell them about Jesus. So we could add that to our understanding of the labor that has led to this amazing harvest on this occasion in John 4. And all of this labor, Jesus laboring in the life of this woman and her going into town and telling people about Jesus. All of this was happening when the disciples were getting food, to buy for themselves and for Jesus. And now here these people come, and they need to be harvested. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, reap that for which you have not labored. It's yours. Others have done much work. And now you may enter into their labor by reaping these souls. And Jesus, I think, would speak the same way to all of us. Jesus would assure us that God is on the move in the city of Riverside. There are people whose hearts God is touching for Christ. There are people around us who are ripe for harvesting because God has brought them to that place of ripeness. And the only way for you and I to Know who the ripe ones are is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and then observe their response, which reveals where they are. In Matthew 9 37, Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He's not saying there's not enough laborers, he's just saying the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. And the language there is assuring us that wherever Christians are, the problem is not so much that the harvest is scarce, but the issue is whether Christians like you and I will be up to the task of reaping the harvest that God has prepared and embracing this mission and praying for him to raise up even more reapers To join us in reaping souls for him. We'll stop here for today, but there's just so much wisdom I think we can glean from these words of Jesus. Let me just state a few of them. First of all, we learn, or if we learn anything from Jesus' words this morning, that uh, we learn that evangelism is not just harvesting. It involves a whole lot of sowing of seeds. So we all need to ask God to help us to be good sowers of seeds, which involves, again, us showing Christ's love to people and speaking biblical gospel truth to them. Also, the fact that evangelism involves a lot of sowing before harvesting teaches us to be patient as we work with people and seek to influence them toward Christ. A farmer doesn't plant seeds and then harvest later that day or the next day, or the day after. He knows that things like this take time, and this is the way it is often with souls. So be patient with the work of God and the souls of those that you would long to harvest for Christ. Don't be discouraged if someone that you are witnessing to does not believe right away. Parents, be patient with the work of God and the hearts of your children and keep sowing and keep praying." We also learn in this passage that evangelizing souls is a team effort. It often takes a village to evangelize a soul, a community of sowers and harvesters who all rejoice together when a soul is reaped for Christ. And when someone harvests a soul, he views that harvest as a victory for the team not as an individual victory. But one thing we really should learn from this passage today is that we do need to embrace our calling to be a reaping church. It is not enough to simply be a church that sows. No farmer says, my job's just to sow seeds. That's just all I'm about. I just sow seeds, and I don't worry about the harvest. That's up to the Lord. That's not a good farmer. Farmers know better than to talk this way. Yes, a farmer needs to sow, but the harvest is always the farmer's goal. And he keeps a close eye on his crops, and he's quick to harvest them when they are ripe for harvest. And the same is true for us as Christians and for us as a church. So let's not be nonchalant about the harvest or about our calling to be involved in harvesting souls here in this community and around the world. Let's take our calling seriously to go throughout our spheres of influence and seek to point people to Christ and to make disciples of all the nations. Let's pray for God to give us souls, and let's be about the business of sowing the Word of God in people's lives and also of reaping them for Christ. But to do this, to do this and to do it well, we must look up from whatever it is that is distracting us and look on the fields and actually see. Behold, Jesus says, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. I wonder if sometimes there are people around us who are more ripe for harvesting than we realize, but we don't notice because we aren't prayed up And we're not really looking and seeing as we should. So I would ask you this morning, how well do you see the state of the fields in your life? What is the state of the souls of the people that you care about? Are you planting seeds and watering them in the hopes of one day seeing a harvest Are you praying to that end? Do you bring up topics of conversation that provide you an opportunity to discern the state of a person's soul in that moment and to provide you opportunity to plant gospel seeds? If you have not been doing that like you should, think about how grateful you are that someone did that to you, that someone shared Christ with you. And ask God to help you to pay that goodness forward to others and let your life get swept up in the larger story of what God is doing in the world and pray for souls to harvest. Make that your prayer and ask God to give you eyes to see the opportunities for sowing and harvesting when those opportunities are right in front of you. This starts at home, parents, as you engage with your kids, and it extends to everywhere you go. And I don't say this to you to tell you to do this out of any sense of guilt, but because there really is no greater enterprise for you and I to be involved in, and it's an enterprise that will bring incredible rejoicing in the end. There's a couple that used to attend our church some years ago that traveled a lot. Um, And I just want to warn you, I am not sharing this story with you to heap any guilt on you, but to inspire you, okay? Um, This couple, whenever they traveled, this is just something they would do. They always prayed before every stop, whether they were stopping for gas or food or even at a rest stop. And when they prayed, they would ask God that while they were at this stop, that God would bring somebody across their path that they could share Christ with or encourage toward Christ. And they did this for decades, and after decades of doing this, they told me that in all of the years that they traveled, there was never a time when God failed to provide somebody for them to talk with about Christ at any of those stops and when I heard this couple sharing this with me at first I was amazed (laughs) and then I was convicted Um, but then the cynical side of me thought did God really put someone at each of those stops in direct answer to their prayers Or did this couple just see people in this way because that's what they were praying for? But then it hit me that that's exactly the point. Because this couple prayed, their eyes were open and on the lookout. And as a result, they saw on many occasions what I fail on many occasions to see. They saw a potential harvest or a potential seed planting opportunity at every stop because they were looking for it and because this was the cause that they wanted to embrace and make their lives all about. This was a couple that sought to give heed to Christ's call to behold, to lift up their eyes and look and really see what God might be putting in front of them. That right there is the first step to being a good sower and a good reaper. Now, you may want to do what this couple did for many years, or maybe you wish to do something different. What I do know is that Jesus is telling us in this passage to behold, to lift up our eyes, and look and really see those whom he is putting in front of us to minister to. Will you do that, asking him to give you the eyes to see as he wants you to see? Think about how many people are in this room right now who know the Lord and how many eyeballs are actually represented in this room this morning. Imagine what could happen if we all lifted up those eyeballs and really looked the way Christ wants us to look. If we all do that, what types of opportunities might we see during the days of this very week? To sow seed, in some cases, perhaps to harvest in others. I hope that all that we're talking about, while you may experience conviction, that this inspires you. Uh, and encourages you to this incredible enterprise that Jesus is directing his disciples and us toward in this passage. And finally, as I close this morning, uh, I must say this, perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know Christ. Perhaps over the years, many people have sown into your life and spoken truth into you and they've pointed you again and again to Jesus Christ. Perhaps you can think of moments when God spared your life and other moments when God turned your thoughts to him, and you see evidence as you look back of God graciously shepherding your life in various ways, perhaps even seeing that he has graciously shepherded your life to this very moment this morning. Perhaps you know of people, family members, and Others who are praying for your salvation. But you've resisted the pleadings of the Holy Spirit. But maybe you're tired of your running from Christ and your sinning. Maybe this morning is the time for you to allow yourself to be reaped by the Lord, for you to do what these Samaritan people are doing, for you to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, and it's time for you to drop what you're doing and come to him. Will you come to him this morning if the Spirit is working in your heart? Jesus says, and this is an amazing promise, anyone who comes to me Literally, I will not, I will not, I will not cast him out. If you have never done so, I urge you this morning to run to Jesus. He will receive you. Call upon his name and believe in him. And he will be more than delighted to receive you into his great harvest and give you this amazing gift of eternal life. And I pray that this morning would be the time when you experience that precious gift from the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, there's so much uh, for us to chew on just from these few verses that we have looked at. There's, there are things in here that personally convict me. There are things in this text that deeply encourage me um i pray lord that as we walk with you this week that we would that you would shepherd us like you're shepherding the disciples and and that there are moments when you're going to say to us behold lift up your eyes look look at what's right in front of you and see as i see help us lord to to be the sowers and the reapers that you have saved us to be and that we uh, would see a wonderful fruit that is produced as a result. Fruit, Lord, that would cause us to give all the praise and all the glory to you and take none of it for ourselves Give us souls, Lord. Give us souls. Through the witness of this church and the people of this church, may there be souls reaped for Christ and ushered into the kingdom of God. And may our church body and our lives be made all the richer by the fruit that is produced. But ultimately, Lord Jesus, may you be glorified through our labors and through the labors of missionaries that we as a church support and pray for. Thank you, Lord, for all those that are representing Jesus Christ and this church and other churches by being in various parts of the world and proclaiming Christ and training others to do the same. We look forward to eternity when we take full scope, full measure of the great harvest that comes about as a result. But in the meantime, help us to be faithful. May we be motivated by gospel grace and by joy in Christ to embrace this great enterprise that you have in your grace given to us. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.